Oh, hey, it's, uh, it's good to see all of you guys this morning, and we are indeed less than a week away from Christmas. It's much to the delight and joy of my children, and uh, probably to many of the adults, the rest of us, also a little bit stressful. And we all seem to lose our collective minds over everything, and even the secular culture around us knows that the way we go about doing Christmas just something's missing. You always hear, oh, what's the reason for the season? And the secular culture has no idea, but they know that there is something more. And they're like, oh, it's about getting together with family and friends. I, I watched a, a YouTube video that mentioned that, and I'm like, that, that is not the reason for the season, but okay, you tried. Uh, but so, so even they know that there's something going on with this season of Christmas, this season of Advent, when we look forward to the birth of Jesus. And we as Christians have a much deeper joy and perspective and understanding of what this time of year is all about, why we celebrate it, why Christians for 2,000 years have reflected upon the birth of Jesus, upon God putting on flesh and dwelling among us, and how that has changed our reality. We have a lot to dwell on and meditate upon, and so I've been kind of walking through the first two chapters of Matthew, looking at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and inviting us to reflect on the truths that we find there in an attempt, hopefully, to reorient our perspective and help us to worship Jesus and to see him rightly in the midst of a crazy time of year. Today, we're going to be looking at Christ's kingship, looking at the advent of the king. Because in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is drawing our attention to Jesus as king. And as we walk through the passage today, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8. I want you to be wrestling with the question of whose kingdom do I actually serve? What king do I actually serve? Who am I yielding my life to? Kingdom is one of the big themes in the book of Matthew. And I encourage you, over the next week, as we approach Christmas Day, if you can, this will take a couple of hours, but take, just sit down and try to read the whole book of Matthew in one sitting. I'd encourage you to do that with any book of the Bible, but especially the Gospels, because I think well, most people have never even read the Bible all the way through, and certainly have not sat down and read a whole Gospel in one sitting. It really does not take that long. It may seem intimidating, but it will only take a couple of hours, I promise, and depending on how fast you read. One time I told my students, I was like, yeah, you guys need to sit down and read Matthew. It'll take you only an hour. And uh, that, just, that just was not true. I had another student come up to me uh, like a, a week or so later, and she was like, I, I tried to read Matthew, and I had an hour, and it took way longer than that. So it may, take, may, it may take two. But, you know, you can do it. You can do it. But you'll notice all sorts of things and themes within the book. And you'll see kind of how Matthew crafts his narrative. And there's two themes that I just want to point out. We'll even see them in uh, a little bit in the passage we're going to see today. The first one is that the people of God are not who you would expect. The people of God have been defined by those, defined as those who have faith in Christ. You see that throughout the book of Matthew. It's not ethnicity. It's not observances of the law. Instead, it's those who have faith in Christ, those who acknowledge who he is, who come to him as their king. That's one theme. The second theme you'll look and see is uh, that the end of the age, or a new age, has dawned in Christ. 
And you see that in all these warnings of, of judgment and that the end is coming in Matthew. I mean, almost every story, almost every chapter has a warning within it, a warning of coming destruction and judgment. You'll see those two running throughout the book. I, that really has nothing to do with what I'm going to say today, but just wanted to highlight those for you guys and encourage you. Sit down, read them through in this, read the, the book of Matthew in the Christmas season. So we're going to be asking the question of whose kingdom or what king do you serve? We're going to open up in chapter 2, and we looked at chapter 1 a couple weeks ago, and I did skip over the genealogy, but real brief, I want to talk about it today because it's important for what we're going to read. Because Matthew starts there, the genealogy tracing Jesus back to both David and Abraham. You see, at this point in time, the Jewish people, people were longing for a king. And they were expecting a king that had been promised, a king that would come from David's family, who was going to restore them, who was going to make all things right. And they're longing for that king to appear. And so when Matthew points out in chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy, he's saying this king, this expected Davidic king, the descendant of David, he's here. It's this one Jesus. Jesus Christ is the, the expected hope of the world. Because in the Old Testament, in the prophets, the restoration of Israel is wrapped up specifically in this king. And it gets developed over and over again in the prophets, and it's a beautiful sight. And so we finally get to the point, yes, it's here. Now we're going to see Matthew kind of flip on its head this expectation of what this king is like and who will be part of his kingdom. So today we're going to walk through the, the, the passage and then I'm going to kind of visit two particular ideas that I want you to take away from this passage. So we're going to walk through the passage first and then we're going to arrive at two ideas. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that our hearts would be soft and our ears open. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I'm going to pause there and say this is immediately surprising. Immediately surprising. Because the first people that come and say, where is the king of the Jews, are these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles. And where are they from? From the east from the east. That's going to come up again and again, this idea that they are the wise men from the east, the dreaded east, the home of Babylon. Now, we don't know if they're specifically from Babylon or not, but this idea of the east has a lot of connotations for the people. The east is where the invaders came from. The east is where the people came that conquered Israel. Israel fell because of men from the east. And now we have Gentiles from the east coming to worship this Jewish king. This Jewish king. Going on in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we see some intrigue here. Why is Herod troubled? Well, Herod is identified as a king. Matthew is playing with this word king in, in, uh, uh, purposefully. He's like, we have the king of the Jews, and then we also have this other king, Herod. Herod technically wasn't even full-blooded Jewish. He was an Idumean, which are, are uh, somewhat descendants of Esau. So he's kind of even an imposter king that had been set up by the Romans. So we have this false king, but he's still the king of Judea. He's still the one in charge. And instead of welcoming the promised Davidic king of the Old Testament, he's troubled. He's like, I don't know about this. I like my kingdom and my power. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, That's where the king was going to be born. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we have a significant conflict between Herod and this king. Because obviously this new king is going to leave no room for Herod to have his kingdom that he received from the Romans. We have this new ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So he gives us this false pretense this, this, these words of, I too want to come and worship. But as we'll see, Herod's heart is far from worship. Far, far from worship. He says, I care about this king. I long to worship him. Yeah, he's the rightful king, but we're going to see that is simply not the case. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This phrase here, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, is an amazing phrase. Because this phrase literally says, in the the Greek, is they joyed a great joy very much. They have this overwhelming reaction to encountering the king. They're saying, yes, this is who it is. Just a baby. Just a baby. But they say, yes, this is the king that we are joyfully, joyfully worshiping. And that is contrasted with Herod's response. His response of suspicion and seeing it as a threat. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Guys, I I, want to just reiterate how stunning this is, that these men from the east come and worship a Jewish baby boy. And Matthew 
says, yes, this is right and this is good. This is uh, is similar to this way. You know, this would not be a Mark Johnson sermon without a reference to IU basketball. Purdue comes to town on January 20th. Purdue is very good at basketball this year. IU, maybe. We'll, We'll find out as the season progresses. So Purdue's coming to town on the 20th. And imagine if some Purdue fans rolled into town. Some, some Boilermakers, they, they show up, they're wearing their Boilermaker gear. Yeah, I know Matt would be really happy about that. They go into Assembly Hall, and as soon as the game starts, they take off their Purdue gear, they put on the cream and crimson, they got the candy striped pants, they're ready to go, and they start cheering their lungs out for IU. You'd be like, okay, that's just weird. I mean, it's right and good, yes, <laughs> but that's weird, right? We'd be like, what, what has gotten into you? And that's what we have here. It's this kind of picture of people who are traditionally the enemies of the people of God coming and worshiping the king of the people of God. It is radical and it is beautiful. And they bring these gifts. They've traveled a long way. They've faithfully followed this star. And they worship the king. They worship. In verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Not worship, but destroy And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Here, I want to point out that God rescues. Herod has this plan of destroying the child. Herod has seemingly all the power. But God says no. No. My plans, my kingdom, it can't be thwarted. And so Joseph is given this dream and they flee to Egypt. And all of this is part of God's bigger plan. And we have another one of these phrases that Matthew so often uses. We saw it a couple weeks ago, this this fulfillment phrase that he uses a lot in these opening chapters fulfills what the prophet says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now I'm going to talk more about this idea of fulfillment again later, but just a reminder, these uh, early prophecies are not always predictive. This particular one is not. If you go back and read in Hosea what's going on there uh, from this, this particular quote, Hosea is looking backwards and talking about the people of Israel and saying, hey, the people of Israel, they were God's son that were called out of Egypt. And he's using that to remind the people of Israel in his current context to repent and follow the Lord. And then Matthew picks this up and says, you see that? All of that was still pointing to Jesus. We'll revisit that again in a moment. But ultimately, God's plans can't be thwarted. God says in Psalm 2, he asks the question, why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the nations rage? He who sits in the heavens laughs. All of our plans, all the things that we do in an attempt to to disrupt what God says, what God is doing, God literally laughs at them and says, what are you doing? 
These are my plans. You can't thwart them. And even if you try, your thwarting is actually part of my plan, and I use it to my own glory and my own purposes. So Herod here is shown to be the bigger fool, and he cannot keep God's kingdom from coming. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We see Herod's extreme reaction. What is he? He's furious. He's furious that he's not getting his way. That the wise men didn't come back and report to him. So he takes things, matters into his own hands. Says, what can I do? Well, I can just kill all of them. I can kill all of them. And this is what sin does. When we try to attempt to keep our own kingdom. It drives us to places and doing things that we never thought we could do. Because we're wanting to hold on to our kingdom so bad. So that's the the extent of our text today. And I want to spend the rest of our time really focusing on two ideas. Because it is very easy to read the passage that we have read and say, yeah, I want to be like the wise men. Yeah, the wise men, they're good. You know, we see them in all the nativity scenes even though you know, they're, they're not there at the beginning, at the, well, on Christ's birth. It takes them like almost two years to get there. All you need is a toddler to kind of screw up your nativity scene. Our nativity scene at our house, the other day she was trying to put baby Jesus on top of the manger. And it was like, oh, you know, I don't know about that. But uh, God's, God's plans can't be thwarted. But uh, anyways, the, 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 the wise men, it's easy to look at them and say, yeah, that's me. I'm part of the people of God. That's my heart. And certainly that's the way we should be and ought to be and want to be. But the truth is, the question that we need to ask ourselves, whether you are a follower and believer in Christ or not, is how am I like Herod? Hmm. He's not in the manger scene. He's not in the nativity but Matthew makes him out to be a major player in the story. The main characters in what we've read were the wise men, Herod, and by kind of circumstance, Jesus. Also Joseph as well, but we looked at him two weeks ago. But Herod's not in the nativity scene, for sure. But we need to ask, how are we like him? Because that enables us to see the dark areas of our hearts that we need to turn away from so that we can turn to Jesus, experiencing his restoration and his healing. So I want you to ponder that today. How am I like Herod? I mean, you're welcome to ponder how I'm like Herod too. You you can do that. But I'm thinking more of in your heart, in your heart. But I'm preaching today not as one who is 100% faithful like the Magi, but has far more Herod in him than he likes to admit. You see, Herod, and this is his main feature, and my first idea, first point I want you to see. Herod, like us, didn't recognize the kingdom, 
We don't recognize the arrival of the kingdom and we actively fight against us. Let me say that again. We don't recognize the arrival of the kingdom and we actively fight against it. God does stuff and we say, uh-uh, I don't want that. God brings things into our life and we say, no thanks God. I don't think, that's not how I planned my life to go. I want my kingdom to reign. I want my purposes to be fulfilled. I want my culture to be supreme. I want my plans to happen. I want what I want when I want it. And nothing can stop me. This is natural in children. All you have to do is spend a few minutes, maybe seconds around kids. And you see, this is natural to us. We want what we want. We fail to submit to authority. God's authority. Authority, basically you can think of it as the right to order things as one sees fit. The right to order things as one sees fit. They have control, uh, they can demand things, they can determine things, and that's what a king is. And so for Christ to be the king, the, the title that he is given by Matthew in this chapter, for him to be the king, the son of David, means he has authority. It means he can order our lives as he wants, and we fail to submit to it. So let's talk about some specific ways that you and I are like Herod, or how we may be like him. Ways that we fight against the kingdom of God, against the king. And again, this is everybody. There is nobody in this room that can say, yeah, I'm, I am totally on board with everything in the kingdom, 100% of my life. No, there are areas of your life that you are fighting against the king. One particular way is control. Control over plans, your career, spouse, family, daily lives, your friendships, vacations, what happens when your plans get interrupted? What happens when somebody demands your time? What happens when a child or a friend does something that you don't want and it thwarts your purposes, your plans? You want control. A second way is that we don't want to worship. What did the, the, the magi, the wise men do? They worshipped the king. They worshipped the king. I'm not just talking about singing worship. But do they, do you joy a great joy very much? Do you joy a great joy very much? When we come together to worship on Sunday morning, are you, is your heart ready? You're saying, yes, I'm joyfully worshiping with the people of God. When you go about your day, are you joyfully worshiping God? And again, not just music, although that's a huge component of what it means to be a believer, someone who's a part of the people of God, or even just a human being. We sing, we make music, it's the way God designed us. But worship is ordering our life for God and living for his purposes. It's us saying, God, you reign supreme. And do we find that joyful or do we find it, oh, this is such a burden. God, I don't want your authority. That's not worship. It's joy saying, Lord, you are who you claim to be and that is good. Do you joy a great joy in your worship? Thirdly, we go to extreme lengths to protect our kingdom. We go to extreme lengths to protect our kingdom. That might be your reputation, your status, your finances, your job, your relationships. There are things that we do to keep things from ruining uh, our kingdom. What was Herod willing to do? Murder. There's a famous quote, I don't know who said it, um, but I find it to be very true in my own life. 
But if you're trying to figure out what you're worshiping, ask yourself the question of, of, of this. What will you sin to get? Or what do you sin? Uh, or when do you sin when you don't get it? So what are you willing to sin to get? And when you don't get it, it causes you to sin. So... Um, I don't want to make a, an example off the, off the top of my head, but just think of a, a something in your life. What do you do to, in order to get it? Will you lie? Will you cheat? Will you steal? Even if it's small. Or when you don't see it, do you covet? Do you become jealous? Or do you, let's say you don't get the reputation or something said about you that you want, so you begin to slander somebody else or try to undermine somebody else in order to, to take attention off of yourself. So you're sinning then when you don't get it. Fourthly, we don't listen to what God has clearly said. We don't listen. Herod had the scriptures. The scribes told him, the king is to be born in Bethlehem. Here we have these men from the east, these wise men coming. He could have said, oh, praise God. The true king is here. I can surrender my kingship to him. But what does he do? No. He doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to what God has said. Now this happens in two ways for us. Either we outright reject the scriptures, which if I'm having, I have a feeling that if you're in this room today, that's probably not your habit, although maybe you do it in subtle ways. But I think maybe what's more common for us is that we reject it by reading and not listening, not paying attention. We just kind of read it and check the box and say, I've done it. But we aren't actually listening. We're not meditating on it. That can quite often be my experience as I'm reading through it. Just reading, you know, turning the pages, okay, you know. Read this, all right, great. Yeah, check the box, did it today. But am I reading with an intent to understand? And remember, understanding means that my life has to be changed. If I really understand what God is saying, my life cannot stay the same. Am I reading to listen and understand what God has said? So that is, we we are like Herod in those ways. And guys, ultimately, this is foolish. Being like Herod, fighting for our own kingdom against the king is foolish. Because there's no peace between our kingdom and God's kingdom. God did not come to share kingdoms with us in the sense of, hey, yeah, you know, your kingdom can live beside mine. We'll have kind of a peace treaty. He says, no, I want you to become part of my kingdom. You've got to surrender and be in my kingdom. And he gives us authority in places within his kingdom, but it also means that that's not really ours. It's been something that's given to us. And it's so foolish. Matt was saying uh, Wednesday morning at our men's group, and this has kind of stuck with me all week. We're the most prosperous people in the history of the world, yet we're the most miserable. Absolutely the most miserable. We have more ability to have our kingdom, have it look the way we want, be the way we want it to be, than any people before us, and we're miserable. Absolutely miserable. Because our kingdom is foolishness. Fighting against God's kingdom is foolishness. Our kingdom doesn't produce life. It produces death. So I want to revisit this, uh, these verse 18. This, uh, this, what happens when Herod kills all of the children. 
God's kingdom always marches on. Our kingdom marches on to death and destruction instead of life and eternity. You see, Herod, when he does this, Matthew brings in this quote from Jeremiah. And this is from Jeremiah 31. And the middle of Jeremiah, is, there's a, it's a book of hope. There's a couple chapters right in the middle where God speaks of a glorious eschatological, that's a fancy word for end times, restoration. A glorious eschatological restoration. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah looks back at the destruction that Babylon has wrought and how there was weeping in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. This is thinking about the destruction that has come, but then there's this promise of saying, one day it will be all made right. That the Davidic king will come. The new covenant will come, and everything will be good again. The way it was supposed to be in Eden. And so here we have Matthew picking up on that and saying, that time is now. That time that Jeremiah spoke of in chapter 31, it's here. This Jesus is that king. Don't fight against this kingdom because life is found in this kingdom. If you fight against it, it leads to death. But if you submit to it, it leads to life. It leads to life. We have no excuse to not see God's kingdom. Psalm 19 says that the skies or the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We are without excuse to know that God's kingdom is real and it deserves our affection and devotion in our lives. But guys, we fight it. So that's the first idea. We don't recognize the kingdom and we actively fight against it. The second idea is that there is hope. There is hope. God's kingdom is available to those who see and submit to it who see and submit to the king because his kingdom is better and it is here. There is hope. God's kingdom is available to those who see and submit to it. Many of us here today are in the kingdom, but we still find ways to fight against it. And so I share this to say there is hope. Remember that there is hope and that the response we need is to surrender to it. It's the same response whether you believe in Jesus and you've believed in him for a long time, or if you haven't believed in Jesus, it's the same response. We come to him and submit to him and say, Jesus, you are my king. As believers, when we see the ways that we have fought against his kingdom, we just come to him and say, Lord, this is how I have fought against you. Forgive me. He says, absolutely. That is my heart. I've longed to forgive you and to have you be in restored fellowship with me. It's the same if you are a non-believer. God welcomes you into his family. He says, acknowledge that you have fought against my, uh, against my kingdom, that you are a sinner, that that sin deserves death, but that Jesus came to bring his kingdom by dying on the cross for the sins, that he died for you on the cross. You believe that. You don't earn it. You don't do a bunch of good things to get his affection. He says, you already have it. Believe that Jesus' death is enough and he says, you will become my child. You will become my child. And so you can do that today. You can believe that today. You can surrender to him today. 
And I beg of you to do so if you have not crossed into God's kingdom yet, that God's kingdom beckons you and that it is good and it is better than your kingdom. Anything that you can do, God can do better. His promises are better. And it brings us into eternity. It brings us into eternity. So, the way of the kingdom, in light of all of this, there's a posture of the kingdom, and it's one of recognition and submission to the true king. That's the posture that we have. Recognition and surrender, submission to the true king. And the way we do that is basically focusing on his kingdom and not mine. It's like showing up to work and asking your boss, okay, what am I supposed to do today? It's not about me just doing whatever I want, but I'm under authority and I do what my boss asked me to do. Unless you're the the boss where you work like me and then I just tell everybody what to do. So, Brian, yeah, that's how it goes. (laughs) But, no, we we ask Jesus, we say, that's how how we focus on his kingdom, saying, what what would you have me to do? Because he really is good. I want to fast forward just a little bit. We're not going to turn there, but uh, when you read through Matthew in one sitting, you can see this. In Matthew chapter 8, we get the first miracles that, uh, that Matthew starts talking about of Jesus. Kind of the first ones where he kind of starts telling the stories. Comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. The first miracles, there's two of them, that Jesus does is to heal a leper by touching him and to heal the servant of a centurion an outsider, an enemy, a Roman. Those are the first two things that Jesus does. He heals a wretched outsider and a leper, and then a wretched outsider of a Gentile. Like, that's that's what he does? Ugh. That shows his heart. That's who he cares for. The broken and the hurting. And so for us, we need to acknowledge our brokenness and our hurting and see that he is a good king and he longs to bring the broken and the hurting into his kingdom. And he cleanses us and he heals us just like he healed and cleansed the leper and the servant of the centurion. The kingdom of God is run by a king who brings broken people together. Briefly, I want to look at the background of the wise men to show how it's unimportant. I want to show what Matthew does not say. Matthew does not dwell on who they worshipped in the past. Matthew does not dwell on their family background. Matthew does not dwell on their education and social skills. We know they're wise men, but don't know what university they graduated from. Don't know what job they really have. Do they work for the king, or are they just kind of scribes and fancy people that did this on their own? We don't know. All of that is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Because Matthew is saying the important thing for coming into the kingdom and being in the kingdom as we live this life is not where you came from. It is the posture of your heart now. Not where you came from, but where is your heart now? Whatever you have done, wherever you have been, whoever, uh, who, wh- whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you have been, does not matter. The kingdom is open to you. And it requires just confessing that I've done it. And even if you're in the kingdom now and you have fought against him in some horrific ways, God does not cast you out. And he says, will you have a heart of surrender to me? 
Our past is irrelevant, but also there's some things that don't get erased, and it's beautiful that they don't get erased. We are told very little about the wise men, but you know what's not erased from them, in this story? Is the fact that they're from the East. Their culture and their ethnicity isn't erased. God welcomes that into his kingdom. He welcomes in a people that are different, that have to figure out how to work together with competing cultures. Can you imagine being in the early church and have to incorporate in these Gentile people from the East who are incredibly different and think differently? We see in the book of Acts that this was a struggle for the early church to figure out these cultural dynamics. But they're not gone. They're not whitewashed. They're real and they're beautiful. And the Christian life in the kingdom is about learning how to navigate them and love each other well in the midst of being different, but having the same heart together. Again, some of you here today may be outside the kingdom, and I just beckon you to come in. God gives you a heart transplant. Maybe you've been trying Band-Aids. You've been trying different things. But God offers you a heart transplant, a new identity. You get to be a new person in the kingdom of God. He welcomes you into the family. All you have to do is receive the gift. For those of you who are in the kingdom, today I just implore you to stop fighting. Figure out how you are fighting. Where in your life are you fighting him? And then say this to Jesus. Jesus, your kingdom come. There's one application takeaway you can have from all this. It's just that phrase. Jesus, your kingdom come. Figure out whatever area of your life it is that you're fighting, whether fighting for, whether it's, it's your plans or your reputation or whatever it is. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Look at that and say, Jesus, your kingdom come in that area of my life. But not just that area, all of my life. And start listening. Maybe ask somebody around you, what area of my life am I living for my kingdom instead of God's? And invite them to speak into that for you. And listen. Listen to what they have to say. And look in the scriptures and ask the same question. So whose kingdom are you living for? And the kingdom is for those who come and worship Jesus and submit to him, not those who stand on what they've done and where they've come from and those who want to protect their kingdom. So Jesus, your kingdom come. Let me pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are the ultimate authority. That you sent Jesus to be the good king. That he is our king. Father, you invite us to have a posture of submission to him. And Lord, I pray that that would be our heart. That we would have a posture of saying, yes, Jesus, you are my king. Not just in some areas of my life, but in all areas of my life because you are good and worthy of all areas of my life. There is nothing in my life that should not belong to you and does not belong to you already. So, Lord, please speak into my life, speak into all of our lives. Help us to see where we are fighting for our kingdoms. And, Lord, may your kingdom come both here in our lives and in our church and in this world. I pray all this in Jesus' name.